to today's program, starring one of Chicago's most acclaimed chefs, Carrie Nahabedian. A few words about Carrie. Growing up in Chicago, Carrie says she was the most influenced in her cooking by her mother. Your mother must have been some cook, huh? Still is. Still. Oh, that's, well. She makes a mean, mean bowl of cereal right now. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta get the recipe from you. And uh, Carrie says she would, and her mother so influenced her. And also, she was influenced by Julia Child. And uh, I, I, years ago, you know, I asked Julia Child if she could speak for our group. And she was very interested in speaking for our group, except she died, so she can't speak for our group. But uh, anyway, she, uh, Carrie described watching Julia Child as like watching an artist painting. Carrie started her culinary career with a three-year apprenticeship at the Ritz-Carlton in Chicago. She then moved to Atlantic City, New Jersey, to become assistant chef to the Garde Manger at the resort's casino hotel. And, and she's been just having great experience in so many places. She moved back to Chicago to work at Le Parquet before moving on to a variety of restaurants in Europe. Carrie returned to the United States, where she became the first woman to work under Jean Banchet at Chicago's La France. In 1989, Carrie became sous chef at the Four Seasons Hotel Chicago and was soon promoted to executive chef. She stayed within the Four Seasons Hotel chain, eventually moving to California to be ultimately become executive chef at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. Did you, did you serve a lot of movie stars there? Oh, every day. Oh, that, that could be a whole other story. Yeah. yeah. Wow. We, we don't kiss and tell, though. Oh, you can tell me. Okay. And, it's like uh, she couldn't keep a job. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie returned to Chicago in 2000 to open Naha, ultimately winning a James Beard Award and seven consecutive Michelin stars. Mayor Richard M. Daly named September 22, 2009, in honor of Carrie, the same day she was inducted into the Chicago Culinary Museum's Chef's Hall of Fame. Carrie opened Brindille in 2013. Is that Brindille or Brandil? How do you pronounce that? Second way. Any way you want. Okay, so we'll, we'll do the American. We never correct anyone. Great, as long as they come to the. the as, long as, as, long as, card. as long as they love the restaurant, that's all we're here about. Great, and I, I love that restaurant. So I'll say the American way, Brindille, B-R-I-N-D-I-L-L-E. -L -L -E. She opened that in two 2013, along with partner and cousin Michael Nahabedian. Is, is Naha officially closed now? Naha's closed, and the new space will be announced soon, very soon. Oh, Naha is closed, but you're opening a... a oh, great. We're moving. Great, you're mo moving? To, to where? Oh. Can't talk about it. Okay. So, you, well, I'll stay tuned. Uh, um, anyway, while Naha served to highlight her Armenian roots, Brindil's refined Parisian fare celebrates hers and Michael's favorite spots in Paris. Now, I've known Carrie for years and I've had the pleasure of eating at Naha a number of times. I'd come there for lunch, but I wouldn't bother to say it, it's Carrie there because I don't want to take you out of the kitchen. And most recently at her newer fine dining restaurant, Brindle, located on Clark near Grand. This week, I just had the best corn soup I've ever had in my life, along with a su superb French-style steak with pommes frites and an incredible 
minuscule piece of little chocolate cake, you know, you look at one of these little things and you say, oh God, you know, it's like, are you just going to inhale it and it'll be gone? I have never eaten a little piece of cake like that that was so loaded with flavor and so many layers of flavor and I, I'm still satisfied over it uh, rather than having a, you know, you go to some restaurants, you get a big piece of cake that's the size of uh, of uh, you know a monster's head or something, and God knows what ingredients are in it, and you never feel satisfied. Anyway, I can't get over I can't get over that little burst of flavor. I'm going to talk about that cake. Thank you. Thank you, because uh, I won't even ask for the recipe because it was made by an artist. And anyway, but the flavors were for us people. And uh, anyway. I had chocolate afterglow in my mouth a long time after the meal was over. I went up to Carrie after the meal. She's around, she comes out, she says, she comes out of the kitchen and greets people, and I think everybody's her friend there. And I asked her, I said, have you ever considered doing this professionally? <laughs> um, but uh, I, um, I've, I've known Carrie, as I said, for years. Uh, I remember attending a cooking class that you gave at Judith Hines World Kitchen class. And Carrie brought her whole family, was your aunts, and, and they were teaching us how to make baklava and holding our hand and showing us how to roll it. I mean, you have the actual aunts and maybe grandmothers just showing you how to make their, their legendary stuff. It was wonderful. And um, Carrie has talked to our group before on her, 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 her Armenian food roots. And today, she's here because she literally stopped me on the street while we were walking I was walking near her restaurant, she was walking by, and we stopped to chat, and she said, I've got a great idea for a program. No, she said she has an idea for a program on Chicago's restaurant history, and I said, that's a great idea, and I said, we got to do it, and that was a long time ago, but it was planted there, and I, we finally, I finally contacted her and said, can you speak for us? And it's not too often when a James Beard award-winning chef stops you on the street and has an idea for a program, you just grab it. So. Anyway, Carrie, would you come on down and dish out your take on Chicago's culinary history? So, like Scott said, I'm Carrie Nahabedian of Naha Restaurant and Brandy, and I've known the Chicago historians since I came to Chicago, which is, came back to Chicago. I can barely see over this. Oh my God, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm a little girl. Um, 18 years ago. And uh, I think it's an important part of our history here in Chicago because um, it's the, the Chicago historians, the culinary, uh, History Museum, these are all great institutions that are going to really capture what Chicago means to the world. So I'll start by saying that as a young girl I um, got hooked on food, not just because of my family, that is, it's a bad thing, is it alright? Um, which is filled with exceptional home cooks. And just this past weekend, we did our big Armenian fest at our church. And I was buying some pastries at the table to take home for the family. And uh, one of the women who's in charge 
is 90 years old. And she said, you know, Carrie, I'm 90 years old, and I make all of this with my team of, of women, and it would be really great if a restaurant chef like yourself would bring your team and come here and cook with us. And, you know, this is always something that, as we say in the business, as I say in the business, to cooks who have this vision of what a restaurateur is and what a chef is, every day isn't cupcakes and milkshakes. So every day isn't like what the media paints this picture of what it's like to be a restaurateur. So every day we're not jetting off to Paris and Zanzibar and, and Sydney, Australia. There's still days when, when the onion needs to be peeled, the onion needs to be peeled. When the stock needs to be made, the bones need to be roasted or there's, someone comes to you and says, by the way, the light's out in the employee bathroom. You know, like, you know these are the Monday days. And I'll never forget Charlie Trotter saying to me one day that he was at the um, 7-Eleven over there on Halstead, around the corner from his restaurant, and he was buying liquid plumber. And some people were in line behind him, and they were like, Charlie Trotter's buying liquid plumber. And he went, well, my drains clog up just like everyone else's, right? So, um, so as a young girl... I got, I got enthralled with Chicago dining because of my father. And one day my dad said to me, you want to come downtown? We're going to go visit a friend of mine is opening a restaurant. He's Armenian and he needs help. So, you know, that's what people do. People need help. And it was, I don't know if any of you remember Zavens on uh, Chestnut, 260 East Chestnut. And I drove downtown with my dad, and my dad was a carpet layer, and Zaven was a long, long time friend of the family. And we went in there, and the place was so intimate, so sexy, so, so restaurant, like it was so exotic in my eyes. And Zaven was like, Mark, I, I gotta open this restaurant, and I need you to fix the carpet, lay the carpet. And all I did was walk around the whole restaurant, go in the kitchen, look around. Now, it was a complete dive. You have to remember that this was, this was before it was transformed. So I'd have to say that on my way back, I remember uh, saying to my father, like, so exciting. He works at night. Like, he works at night. And so I think that that's, uh, that's how I, that's how I um, finally got caught. Now, when Scott told me how long I was going to speak, I said, you know, I could talk to a palm tree for an hour, you know, because that's just how I am. But also, we could talk a whole hour just on the influence of Charlie Trotter in Chicago and what Charlie did and what's happening in Chicago because there is no more Charlie Trotter. So I would start to say that Chicago has always been a food-centric city. And from the 1800s, chefs have made their names here. And um, it's, it's great to have a city where the mayors are into the food. So we had, you know, I only met Mr. Old Man Mayor Daly once when I was a child. And I was at the Chicago Stadium, and my dad pointed him out to me. We were at a... Um, 
we were seeing the Russian gymnasts, right? And uh, my dad said, those are the two most powerful men in Chicago right there. And it was Richard J. It was Richard Daly and W. Clement Stone were having a conversation with old man words at the time. And I still have the program where Mayor Daly signed my program. And so I never knew, but judging by his stature, I would say he liked food. But his, his son certainly propelled chefs into, he realized that chefs in Chicago were a driving force for business, which meant sales tax. That's, we were just walking cash registers for the city of Chicago, and we still are. And then we have Rahm Emanuel, who is the same way. I will say that uh, Mayor Daley, younger Mayor Daley, he made a big impact on the city because I know what might even agree with this, that when you opened a restaurant in Chicago when Mayor Daley was mayor, he was in your restaurant within a week of it opening, and he would say, the first thing out of his mouth would be, I'm really sorry if you had any issues getting your licensing, because back then it was a very big issue. And I'll, I'll never forget when he came, uh, he said, is there anything I can do? And he looks at Michael and I, and Michael, without hesitation, said, I, I I need all these spots in front of the restaurant. I need all these spots. Like, I need valet parking. And the mayor came, the ne well, he didn't, but the next day, a man came, cut down all the meters, presented Michael with a bill, and uh, planted new trees, and said, whatever you need, you got it. And this is the working relationship. You, you go back to Chicago in the 1800s, we are the city that works, okay. We, we all know the back roads of everything, but from the 1800s on, Chicago has, you know, the, the fascination with food started with the Potawatomi Indians who had a settlement and trading post at where the lake and the river meet. The early settlers, I did a little bit of research and found out that they used to drive the cattle right down Chicago Avenue to the, to the lake. So we can imagine what, I can smell that just as I wrote that, right? Um, but I'm gonna talk about the chefs and the visionary restaurateurs who over the decades made Chicago the dining destination that it is. And you've probably heard it a thousand times since January 1st, but we are the number one restaurant city in America right now. Um, we took that over from San Francisco, which I think we overtook New York a long time ago, just in the diversity and the fact that we came out of the recession much stronger than any other city. Every chef was waiting in the wings to do their next restaurant. And um, other cities took a long time to catch up. So Bon Appetit, Condé Nast Traveler has named Chicago and that fueled the 55.5 million people that came to Chicago uh, last year and continues to do so. So not everyone who comes to Chicago in 2018 is eating at They're eating. We could spend an hour just talking on about hot dogs and portillos and deep dish, deep dish pizza and Maxwell Street and things like that. But the, the history of Chicago 
is so vast. I mean, we can just talk about prohibition, which uh, dramatically changed the style of restaurants and brought about the original speakeasies. And it, it was true. I, um, I have a very, very old book that was given to me by a customer. And I showed it to uh, my dad a number of years ago. He said, oh my God, I remember these restaurants from you know, before I went to war, after I went to war, these, these were restaurants, Carrie, that um, has stood the test of time that just like now where all the alumni of Charlie Trotter are, are scattered all over the United States with their own restaurants, back then you had that same situation. The people, the, the restaurateurs on Rush Street, I mean, Rush Street in the late 1800s, early 1900s is exactly how it was now. That it was, people realized then that this was the epicenter for nightclubs, speakeasies, dens of iniquity, all different types of, of things. So um, most highbrow restaurants had pillars in their dining room that had little doors in it and that's where they stashed all the the bootleg booze and the glassware and the mixers so that if they did have a raid, it just went into the walls and no one saw it. Um, and uh, you know, we've all seen the untouchables and we've all seen how Al Capone ruled the city. And to this day, when I travel and I say something about Chicago, and I might be, you know, years ago, even in Paris, people would go, oh, you know, they imitate the machine gun. But then that gave way to Michael Jordan. And then we, for a long time, we got rid of the Al Capone image. And I wonder, as we approach 100 years of that, if that's ever going to go away. But um, Adolf Renucci was the first uh, restaurateur on Rush Street. And he defied prohibition. He had an Italian restaurant. And he served red wine in coffee cups. So no one even thought to think, if, if the, if the G-men were coming in, they never thought to look in the coffee cups. They just assumed it was coffee. But he served red wine. And uh, his restaurants was Adolph's. And then Agostino started, which I think a lot of you might remember Agostino's. And that's right where Russian State is, kind of like where the original Morton's is and where the little park is across the Viagra Triangle, right? Um, he also, right when uh, Prohibition ended and depression started, he, he was a visionary and he did the all-you-can-eat chicken and you got a cocktail and it was a dollar because you needed to bring people in and he realized that maybe once you're in, you're going to spend more money, right? But a dollar for all-you-can-eat chicken. So I would say in the 1930s, you already had someone thinking of happy hour and buffets. Um, so Agostino st started what has become quite normal in our industry, which is why people start in the restaurants is that they always, there's a, you have to have a fire in your belly to, I mean, there's a lot of professions like that, but you have to have a fire to work in a restaurant. Um, when we opened Naha, I tapped my two older sisters who never worked in the restaurant business. One was a banker, one was a um, travel agent for American Express. And the first thing my sister said to me after about a week, she's like, my, my middle sister who handled the financials was like, 
oh my God, I love working in a restaurant. The day just flies right by. And I said, she goes, you come in and everyone's prepping for lunch and then it's lunch and then, then there's family meal and then everyone's prepping for dinner and then it's dinner. And I look at her, I go, yeah. And then we start again and you're gone. Like, so um, she would always come to me and go, the day's gone like that. And she's walking out the door at four o'clock. Yeah, well, we started at seven and we're walking out the door at one in the morning. So it's the same way. Every steward, dishwasher, busboy, barista, glass polisher, there's a whole progression. I mean, we have, we have long-time back waiters or busboys, as you might call them, who bring in their grandsons or their child and say, all right, he's 13 years old, he can work on a Saturday night and he's gonna, I'm gonna teach him to be a glass polisher. And they take him under their wing and they teach him how to be a barista, which is to make your cappuccino and espresso. And that is what started at Agostino's, that every busboy captain, servers, they took their very, very small wages, because remember, this is right at depression, and um, to open their own restaurants. So that's what started the big craze in Chicago is that one person left, opened a restaurant, another one started. And the failure rate back then was pretty similar to what it is now, which is one in three restaurants will fail. And if you make it to five years, I guess you, you I guess it's like a marriage, right? You make it to five years, you, the next thing is seven, and then after that, maybe you're home free for a little bit. But um, the restaurant Armando's, which was at Rush and Superior, started, the, started that way. And before that, you had like the Singapore Room and the Paramount Club. And my dad said that the Paramount Club is where the Ann Rand or Sally Rand with the big fan dancers, that's where she got her start. And then it became like the entertainment. People would come, and my mother is recovering from heart surgery right now, and she's at my house, and she's addicted to Turner Classic movies. It's all, you know, so I think I've seen every movie from the 30s and 40s. And, you know, I just marvel at these huge dining rooms and people are dressed up and in gowns and there's entertainment and you wondered, we can't even begin to think about how much that's gonna cost to do that, and to bring entertainment even one night a year to your restaurant. So imagine in the 40s what it was like with these dining clubs and supper clubs. So uh, the early 1900s brought the likes of Diamond Jim Brady, the Prince of Wales, the Vanderbilts, Royal Heads of State would frequently come to Chicago and they would dine at these bastions of French cuisine like Café de Paris and Henri's, which supposedly was the birthplace of Crepe Suzette because somebody wanted dessert for their pretty girlfriend. Now, whether or not you believe any of these stories, but all of a sudden you have a new dessert. You have Crepe Suzette. So we'll talk about my chocolate dessert later. But back then, there was no menus. People just dined on whatever the chef sent out. And there's that amazing scene in uh, um, the amazing scene in um, Hello Dolly, where she goes to the big restaurant in New York, and you know they have pheasant under the glass, and the, you know it's all entertainment. Every single thing, the private dining rooms. So just imagine that was what Chicago was like. 
Um, the first big luxury hotel is still right here in Chicago. Um, the Drake Hotel opened on New Year's Eve, 1920, and with it came the Cape Cod Room. And as you all know, the Cape Cod Room just recently closed, but the history of the Cape Cod Room is so deep, and that's why um, there's so much history at the Drake Hotel, because the Drake was the place. You have to remember, they, um, if you hear about why Streeterville is called Streeterville and why Gold Coast is called Gold Coast, um, I, I think the whole hotel and the land and the building and everything, they said cost $10 million in 1920. So that was an amazing amount of money, but it's still going strong and it's 2018. I think they have a big celebration coming up for their 100 year anniversary. But entertainment in the Gold Coast room, they had that Club International, they had the Camellia House, and that led to many more hotels. So when I talked to Scott, I said, you know, it's not just restaurateurs and their restaurants that made Chicago, it was the hotels that started. So you had the Blackstone, you had the Edgewater Beach, you had the Ambassador East, which led to the Pump Room and its present 15th reincarnation right now. But this was the era of uh, people dining leisurely and with enjoyment. It was like the era of, maybe it wasn't like the time of the Titanic, but it certainly was the, the 1920s, 1930s. People were getting dressed up. They were enjoying, they had nowhere else to go. What were they, the women didn't work, right? They just went, they went out, they drank, they had music, food, and entertainment. And, um, when you talk to the, my cousin Michael would have a big conversation to you about suddenly a bartender's a mixologist, right? And, uh, but back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, the, the bartenders ruled the bars. They, they made anything that you wanted and the more exotic because people were traveling on ships and, uh, Going, going to Europe and drinking pink squirrels and grasshoppers. So you had like, um, I have old books, old cocktail books and things. It's like the Song of the Isle, the Singapore Cutter, the Banshee. These are all like Bird of India. If I went to our mixologist and, you know, you go to any mixologist and say, make me a Bird of India, they'd have to go, okay, let me Google that, right? Because... I remember the days when there was no Google and there was no internet and everybody had a Boston bartender book behind their bar because somebody would come in and want to know how to have a leapfrog, um, all, the merry widow, the rum cooler. But these are, today's mixologists, they're getting their inspiration from pre-prohibition, pre post-prohibition cocktails that, um, that fuel their inspiration. And these were the days of Ireland's Oyster House and the Erie Cafe, Chez Paul, Dill Pickle Club, Chez Paris, Adolph's, Ricardo's. These were, these were one-name restaurants that all had one thing very much in common. And I'm going to digress for a moment and say this was the era of maitre d'hotels, maitre d's. And any great restaurant had a maitre d'. You had the captain, you had the maitre d' who ran the dining room, spoke several languages, 
because you never knew which, which type of clientele would come in. And you had captains, you had servers, back waiters, and you know, if you remember way back in the day how you used to have two lines for gratuity and it would say captain and then it would say service. So when we talk about Zavan, he was like the first maitre d' I ever met, like in a tuxedo every single night. Like, I don't even know many men that own a tuxedo anymore because <laughs> black tie can mean anything, right? It's, it's, we're in a creative industry, so when I say to my cousin, oh, we're going to a black tie event, I know exactly what he's gonna wear because he has a look and that's what he's gonna wear. But Zaven wore a tuxedo every single night. He was at the Four Torches, if you remember, across the street from the Park West, in Lincoln Park West. And um, something I remember as a child when my dad was walking around and they were ripping up the carpet and, and uh, looking at the restaurant, my dad said, what are you going to name it? And he said, I'm going to name it Zavens. And I remember looking like, you're going to name it after yourself. I might have said that as like a 10-year-old. He said, well, I could call it Mark Twain. I could call it anything I want, but why? Business is hard enough as it is. Why make people search you out? If you're known by your name, you're, they're going to find you. And these were the days of reservation books that are as big as this scrapbook that's sitting here, that there was no internet, there was no computers. It, everyone just picked up the phone and you wrote it in. And it was amazing that I, I would, would love to see, probably Wolfgang Puck the, at the original Spago probably still has all his books because if you looked at the old reservation books, I remember at La France, they were, you'd squeeze someone in and they were just shoved on the corner of the page and it would say like VIP or this is a visiting chef and you just, you know, everything was a scribble and um, I kind of miss that. I mean, I love open table and I love talk and I love everything because I now know I don't have to in pre-meal say 15 different ways of saying that this guest has a peanut allergy because it's forever in their notes. And back then you had to transfer everything page by page. So I think that the, um, uh, the maitre d's really fueled the expansion of restaurants in Chicago because they were the face. The, the person that owned the restaurant was maybe sitting in a booth or something and was like the producer of a show but the real director of the whole operation was the maitre d'. And if you look into movies like uh, Pope of Greenwich Village where there's that amazing restaurant scene where you know, the maitre d' has to come back into the kitchen and roll up his sleeves and make an order of pasta because the chef is drunk. And th this, was, this, is what, what, this is what happened back then, maitre d's they didn't necessarily go to culinary school, but they almost all worked on a cruise ship or they almost all worked somewhere overseas and they knew how to do this. Just yesterday I had a conversation with a well-known hotelier and we were talking about a restaurant and he said, Carrie, I can go in the kitchen and he named another hotelier with him and we could do a better job than this chef is doing right now. I go. 
you didn't know how to cook. And he said, but as hoteliers, we all went to culinary school because back then that's what you did. You wanted to be work in our industry. This was a very serious business. And it was all about the style and the finesse and the panache of it all. Um, but I will say that I really started, the reason why I dragged the scrapbook, and I, as I said to Ina, I have so many more that, you know, when I'm gone, my nephews are probably just going to, my family's just going to throw them in the trash. But um, I started keeping an eye on the Chicago scene, dining scene in like the mid-1970s when I was, a, you know, a, a youngster. And every day the newspapers were filled with stories about restaurants. And I think that, that this is a, a really a sad demise of our society right now that journalism is, lifestyle journalism has taken a backseat to finance and, and politics. And sometimes you just want to read a nice story, right? And uh, Jean Bonchet was in the newspaper at least once a week and the cover of the you know, the, the end of the Chicago Bill Rice and the end of the Chicago Tribune Sunday magazine. When I came to Chicago, um, and even way back, like I'm talking about in the, in the 70s, if you were in the Chicago Tribune Sunday magazine, you had made it. There was nothing higher than that. And you'll see in this book how many times Vonchet was in it, and A Day in La Parroquet, and... Doug Roth and, and Arnie Morton, these were, these were visionaries that shaped it, but also there were journalists who saw what these individuals were doing. And, and I made a great comment earlier about never underestimate what the public sees, because I was saying about this restaurant near my house where the lines are out the door. And even my mother, who's 89, goes, the food is sheer garbage there. Doesn't people... But I go, yeah, but the portions are big, so the people are going, right? You know, it's the old joke. Food's horrible, but yeah, but look at the portion size, right? So I think it was really tremendous that every day you open the newspaper, and yes, you were reading about, you know, the 70s were the oil crisis and, you know, um, the Middle East. and But it was nice to read a story about, I mean, to read about Jean Bonchet every single week it was free publicity, but also back then, restaurants advertised. There was paper magazines, there was Chicago Magazine, there was Town and Country. They, these were magazines that all embraced the restaurant culture. And um, I think that the PR firms were everywhere and they gave rise to the success of the restaurants because Chefs were not necessarily celebrities, but it was all about the food, and it was all about escaping. Dining is an escape. You know, like, if I cook something that you can make at home, why are you going to come to my restaurant? Well, you're coming for entertainment or something, but really, um, I have to make sure, and every chef, whether you're at Portillo's or you're at Alinea, you have to make sure that the experience is a memorable one and that that's why you came. It's the same going to a movie. You go to make an escape and to experience something. But I really truly believe that it was the journalists of Chicago that fueled the expansion of restaurants. 
we had people like Mike Ryko who had the first rib fest. And I read about it the other day because it was in my scrapbook. And, you know, Mike Ryko's column was taken over by John Cass. And John Cass, as tremendous as he is about a political uh, journalist, <laughs> little known fact that he's Greek and he is just obsessed about food and I'm going to send him a message and say you know maybe you need to bring back the Mike Ryko rib fest because the first winner back in I, I don't remember what I wrote 1971 or 77 was a little known guy like his name was Mr. Robinson which led to Robinson ribs right and um, all these rib guys from Texas and South Carolina, North Carolina, were all just so annoyed that somebody like this, like, it's all about the sauce. Well, you fight about that. It's not all about the sauce. Some people say it's all about the sauce. Some people say it's all about the meat. And I will say that, you know, maybe we need a rib fest. I mean, maybe we need a little distraction, right? But it wasn't just Chicago, it was the suburbs as well. We had supper clubs, we had entertainment. I think people remember like uh, Mr. Ricky's and um, I'll never forget, um, I grew up on the north side and seeing Tower Restaurant and I'd be so excited. Like, and I go, they're known for the duck all orange. And my parents would go, how would you know that? I go, I, I read it in the newspaper. And so my dad one day took us all there and they came out and they carved it and they had the white gloves. And those are the things, I might not remember anything else, but I do remember the duck and it was so crisp. And it's nowhere near like the duck we get now, like the Magray and the Mullards and the aged duck breast. This was just a regular, Long Island duckling, and you were actually saying to yourself, this duck came from New York. Now, uh, that's kind of norm, but back then, um, the 70s also brought what I think was one of the biggest, greatest times that fueled Chicago on the international stage, and that was the French Mafia in Chicago. And I find it really humorous that all these magazines and internet sites and food bloggers are talking about the return of French cuisine and how, how hip it is and how cool. And if I go back and look at these 25 French restaurants like Seal Blue, which was stunning in the Mayfair region. I mean, East Lakeshore Drive used to have the Mayfair region. Latite de Paris, Pierre Poulain was one of the great innovators and he retired and now he's a beekeeper. I mean, like, how awesome is that, that you're a beekeeper? And um, Everest, um, pushing over 30 years. Ambria closed at 30 years. Le Francais, of course, don't even talk about it because it's so tremendous. I mean, like, like Charlie Trotter, Jean Bonchet, you could talk for a day about the influence and what it was like to be in his kitchen. The White Hall, the White Hall was the hotel. Forget the Four Seasons because it wasn't even there, but the White Hall, that's where Jean-Pierre Henri started, and that's where all, like, if you were the Rolling Stones, you came to Chicago, you stayed at the White Hall because it was a truly boutique hotel. Ciboulette, La Poussette, La Creperie, La Fontaine. La Fontaine, we used to go to all the time, which turned into Jean-Claude's, which then spawned Le Bouchon, La Sardine, 
uh, Cafe Provençal, the, the truly, the woman, forget the glass ceiling, she made the glass ceiling and then busted it, was Leslie Rice, who we lost her well before um, she even, I just wonder about what she would be, what she would be doing now if, uh, if she hadn't uh, unfortunately passed away. Cafe Provençal was, people went to Evanston and you didn't worry about now, nowadays, we have Uber and everything, but you went to Evanston and your biggest concern was how am I gonna get home if I have a drink because I gotta go on Lakeshore Drive. But the food was so amazing and that's, you know, Cafe Provençal became Trio, which spawned, you know, uh, Grant Ackett's and, and um, they had the series of chefs that went through Trio and it became Quince and now it's uh, Amy Morton's restaurant. You had La Rendezvous, which I don't know if anyone of you recall, but this was the place. Um, it's like where Orvis is right now on Ontario off, and it burns suspiciously, and I think it was probably the massive amount of cocaine that was in the restaurant. <laughs> but it was three floors of just like, the food was tremendous, but it was also a disc. It was like the original, it was probably like what would be like Tao now. Like you, you went there and you stayed there the whole day or you stayed there the whole night because there was dancing, there was food, there was a bar. There was no other reason for you to leave. You had a captive audience. Um, Bernard Cretier at Le Vichyssois who wanted to create um, a French dining destination just like in France and chose McHenry County and and uh, people would drive on a Sunday afternoon and uh, you know spend a whole afternoon dining leisurely and it was you were like in the countryside. Um, Maxime de Paris, Nancy Goldberg, I mean think about that. Think about that tremendous space and how many times it's been reincarnated but I don't I don't know if it ever can go back to what it was but the city of Chicago recognized that, and that space still is known as the Maxime Zapari spot. Um, Lupero K with Jovan Trevojevic, who um, we had two chefs in Chicago that were both honored by the French government. They were both chevaliers of the French order. Um, Bonchet for obviously his work in uh, being a chef and hospitality, and Jovan the same way, but also for his help with the French resistance in World War II. And there was no one more imposing. I, I had the pleasure of working for these gentlemen and Jovan was the consummate professional, so impeccable. You know, it was the you opening the doors at 7 a.m. and ever the crisp linens and it was just so exciting, the sound of the vacuum cleaner and the room being set and the flowers and, and like, uh, I know when we got scolded for talking, we were talking about how it cost $7 to eat at Le Perroquet. And it was the most New York of restaurants right here in Chicago. What a visionary he was. And to start a dining club that still exists, Les Nomades, which it's no longer a dining club, but it was a dollar. But the, the cabinet was that you had to get invited to attend. And when I worked for Jovan, 
it, it was some of the most happiest times because everything, it wasn't necessarily about the chef, even though he employed really great chefs. Um, uh, Michael Beck was the chef when I was there, and he went on to open Le Ciboulette, which is now where like Third Coast is in, in the Gold Coast, over there by the pump room. But Jovan, when I left to go to Europe and I was gonna go travel, he said, um, and then I, I you know, he, he wrote me letters of introduction to people because you couldn't do stages back then. They wouldn't, the, it was very, very difficult to get into any kitchens, but those letters provided you to at least, I was a woman too, to get you into the kitchen just to see it. And I remember that I still have the letters, big, you know, big <sighs> handwriting, big flamboyant handwriting. And when I came back, and we, he used to dine at Naha with his wife, and I thought it was such a love affair, the two of them, was they would eat the same thing. They would have the Greek salad, and if I had squab on the menu, they'd have squab. They would have the same dessert, and I'd say, don't you want something different so you can share? And he's like, no, I want my own food, and she wants her own food, and we like the same thing. And I, um, he invited me to Les Nomades, the first time that I dined there when it was a private club when I left Chicago to go with Four Seasons and the etched martini glasses on the little silver tray, I still like, I have, I have martini glass envy because you know what it takes to keep a martini glass that's etched, chip free and washed and sparkling and um, the incredible restaurant to Mary Beth Laconi. She's keeping this tradition going. It, you know, if you haven't been to Lena Mod, I, I urge you, it's like a little refuge in a whole city of madness that you can go in there and still get a half bottle of Chateau de Cam and it's in a, shant, a silver bucket right on your table. Um, there was Les Gargot, which was, had expanded and had two Two, two locations. Um, we talked about Zavens. Carlos, who I showed uh, Ina a menu. You, I'll leave the book so you guys can check it all out. But, you know, it was $2.50 to have a rope for a salad, you know. Um, I met Carlos when I worked at La Francais, and he too was the same way. He was like the maitre d'. He was the lead. He worked with Doris, Jean's wife. And he was, the, he was the head man in the dining room. And uh, it was a big deal when he said he was opening his own restaurant in Highland Park. And look how long Carlos lasted and that spawned how many restaurants after that. Le Bastille, Alouette, the Ritz Dining Room, which one of the great losses of the city. Um, Latour at the Park Hyatt where uh, I worked, I was chef de cuisine there and I can tell you that on um, any given Saturday night, the, the pastry table, the big, huge wooden pastry table, was lined up with engagement rings, with table numbers, because it was such a romantic dining room. It wouldn't be unusual to have 10 engagements in a night, and I would sit there and say to myself, it's kind of like the Jerry Seinfeld joke that we just 
pull up in our nice fancy car and just throw the keys to some guy in a red jacket and we'll assume he's the valet. It's, it's the same thing in the restaurant. You're handing over a $10,000 diamond ring to a server which might have five tables and oh, uh, by the way, hands it to the pastry chef. And um, it was such a romantic dining room and Latour is obviously now where Canada Goose is in the new Park Hyatt. It was street level. Um, Les Plume. These were these were all. I mean, when when people say, "Oh, French dining," um, you know, there's Chicago. Ha we're starting to see French dining in Chicago. It's like, oh my God, are you kidding me? We we started French dining in Chicago, and this all came from the French mafia. And then I'm going to bring you all the way back around to say that the French mafia was a term of endearment because it was a pack of French chefs and it was like a, a fish ball in the ocean eating, right? It was just a massive amount of talent all in one city and headed up by Jean Bonchet and the unbelievable Fernand Gutierrez who, who produced more executive chefs for Four Seasons Hotel than any other person who was my mentor, who was Sarah Stegner's, George Mambara, Susan Weaver, the list goes on and on because Fernand was such a force to be reckoned with that I believe that in the dictionary, if you look up French chef, there should be a picture of Fernand right next to it because he was the, the French chef, the big mustache, the toe, the body. Fernand, for him, there was nothing greater than food. And, um, you know, uh, the, the thing is, is that in our culture, you want to you wanna work for people like this. We emulated, like nowadays, uh, I don't know how far I go in the industry if I was like how Bonchet was when we were um, coming up, but we all wanted the three Ferraris, the Lamborghini, the Maserati, the... Mercedes-Benz, the diamonds, the, I mean, it, the, the month in France, this is what we all aspired to. This was the sign of success. It also was the sign of the times. Like, if I suddenly walked in wearing a mink coat in my restaurant, um, I can tell you right now that uh, everyone in the restaurant would want a mink coat. Like, oh, if she's got one, well, I have to have one. But this was just the generation where you looked up to everyone, and Fernand, everyone wanted to be Fernand. And he was just a normal, everyday guy that embraced food and knew everyone in the food world. Um, Jean-Pierre Henri, Jean-Claude Poilavi, Gabino Sotolino, uh, Bernard Cretier, Jean Joho, Pierre Poulain, Yves Robad, Michel Sergut. This was a group of men that formed the Vattel Club, which is from the 1700s, and you might all maybe know the story of the, chef, the famous chef Vattel, who uh, killed himself because he thought that on the eve of a big banquet, because he thought his fish wasn't fresh enough or it hadn't arrived. And so the Vattel Club has always been the sign of true gastronomy. But it was these men, they virtually controlled how Chicago was perceived in France. So if a French chef 
wanted to leave France, they would go to Paul Bocuse because he was the grandfather of cuisine in, in France and say, I want to go to America. And Paul Bocuse would call up Jean Bonchet or Fernand and that guy had a job. There was no resumes, there was no, it was just a network. And I remember as a, um, you know, I was saying, oh, Carrie can't keep a job. I counted in my career how many, how many jobs I've had from high school to now, and it's like 10, right? You know, that's it. Because nowadays, I interview people that have three jobs in a year. And you're like, when we worked at La France, we had to make a commitment that we'd be there for two years because you want to learn the restaurant, two years was the word. Then it became one year. Now it's like you, get, you have chefs you have, you have chefs that are constantly evolving and changing their menus because you have such innovative cooks who are like, they, they get the itch at six months. So I wonder about that. Um, but all these French chefs led to other French chefs coming to Chicago to visit and to guest chef, like Roger Verger and Paul Bocuse. We would see Bocuse all the time in Chicago and Jean Troigot because it was chef to chef. Like, we know people here. We know people in L.A. You only go where you know someone. And that's the really, really old school way. And I have to, I have to say that this is how it all came. And then all of a sudden, Playboy magazine decided to do the restaurant issue. And it became the number one uh, the number one list. It didn't matter that it was in a Playboy magazine. It didn't matter that um, to buy the magazine, you to read about the restaurants, you were also buying into the whole Playboy culture. But they had the top 25 in Chicago, uh, top 25 in America, and we always had, we were always in the top five with Le Francais or Le Perroquet. And I, I remember working at both these restaurants when the Playboy list would come out and you were always nervous, was it, who was going to be on top? Was it going to be Lutes with Andre Soltner? Was it going to be Le Francais? And that fueled the fire even more because people started saying, they started, they started to travel based on the Playboy list. And then... Food became theater, and we all know what happened in Chicago. 1971, a college dropout with $17,000 named Rich Melman opened R.J. Grunts. $17,000. $17,000 won't even get you in the door of a lawyer right now to say, <laughs> I want to I wanna open a restaurant. When you know that a liquor license costs you $6,500, you are like, $17,000, he opened a restaurant. And... Um, in 1981, he had seven restaurants. It's 2018, and I would say he's probably closer to 100 if you add in now his children, and RJ is, is running the company now. But if you look in this book, and, and I urge you to, and I'm going to leave it, and Scott can bring it back to me another time, but the men that now run his company, guys like Kevin Brown and... Gabino and, and uh, Joho that were the driving forces from turning the corner from things like Great, Gats Great Grits, Gatsby's Flying Food Show, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. I mean, we all remember these fun names. He created the salad bar. 
uh, Lawrence of Oregano, and then Bones, and then, of course, the pump room. Rich was so ahead of his time. He was pre-Yelp, as I call it. Like, if, you had a, if he had a bad review, or people wrote a comment, he put it in a full-page ad in Chicago Magazine and said, um, we're proud of our past accomplishments and look forward to the next 10 years, right? You'll see that ad in there, and you'll see people saying, I don't understand what's so great about this restaurant, right? Like, because there's people that look at a man go, and don't understand, it's not my thing. Like, how do you look at a Van Gogh and it's not your thing? But it's the same way with food. It's a very personal experience. And Rich delved into that by saying, this is fun, this is entertainment, let's have a good time. You know, when he opened uh, Ed DeBevick's, you know, people would complain, it's so loud, and the waitress, and the, this is what he wanted to create. This is why you watched Happy Days, to go to that diner, and now it was right here in Chicago, and, you know, look at the run that Ed DeBevick's had before, you know, developers came and offered, you know, like, this is, now we have a high-rise there with no restaurant, but this was the time where the Greek islands and the Parthenon were considered the some of the best restaurants in Chicago. So you gotta think long and hard about that. The Greek islands and the Parthenon were on the same list as Le Francais and Le Perroquet because that showed you even in the 70s, you had the diversity of what makes Chicago so great. And um, the, the whole idea, the 1985 cover story of the Chicago Tribune magazine was riding high and how he became, how Rich became the restaurant king of Chicago. And it's the Midas touch. It was, he just tapped into what people wanted and made it fun and affordable. And he hired great people who embraced that same culture. And 47, almost 50 years later, he still does that. He still builds his divisions on loyalty. He builds his, um, his, his, I guess you would call it a very large empire. He still works. He still has his hand on the business. And that's the thing. We, we all know the rise and fall of restaurateurs and uh, a person like a Roger Greenfield, who was a visionary himself with Dixie and American Grill and, and uh, his slew of restaurants. When people see one restaurant and it's a success, they just want to throw money at you. But the whole idea of the restaurant industry is that you have to keep it going. It's a daily show. It's not like this is a two-week run in Las Vegas. This is every single day. Um, Louis Sathmary and the bakery. You know, Charlie Trotter used to tell me that when he was in high school, he went there for prom, and Louis used to let everybody on prom have a glass of wine because, you know. Uh, but Louis was like the consummate, he was like the first celebrity chef. He, um, he did book signings and demos, and if you're lucky enough to have one of his cookbooks or you find it on eBay, he, he drew a big chef and he signed his name and it was like, oh my God. And his cookbook collection, which was in the dining room, if you remember it, on Lincoln Avenue over there, um, went to Johnson & Wales because the depth of his... I, I, I've ate there so many times and my late brother-in-law, he loved it there because it was like that old bohemian. 
But long before Gibson's, there was Arnie Morton and Doug Roth, Don, uh, Don Roth, which son Doug Roth, and Eli's and the Black Hawk, and the list goes on and on. I mean, we, we could stay up here for another hour and talk about just steakhouses and Gene and Giorgetti's, which is, I think, over 50 years now. But I will say that when Chicago really turned the corner in 1981, the New York Times came to Chicago with Mimi Sheridan as the food writer, and uh, she wrote about the metamorphosis of Chicago dining. And she talked about the restaurant she chose was like Carson's Ribs, <laughs> and, the, and the Palm Restaurant, and Cafe Provençal, and La Mer, and La Francais. And um, she talked about what these people did to make Chicago dining. Like, that was a big deal. I bet New Yorkers were n not too happy to open up the food section and see that the New York Times was in Chicago. Um, we can take a moment and talk about the early risk takers, um, the people that went like Gordon Sinclair. You know, he, he saw the vision of River North, which is now the, you know, the new epicenter for restaurants in the city. He hired like Michael Cornick, Danya Mucci, the Turzak brothers, and um, let's talk about those artichoke fritters. That he took canned artichokes and made a fritter batter and served them with Bernays and probably made, you know, tens of millions of dollars just for serving an artichoke that was dipped in batter, which, by the way, is stunning, you know, but you won't get that same effect if you use a fresh artichoke, just thinking about it. There was Jimmy Rohr of Jimmy's Place, Elston Avenue. I mean, I remember going to Jimmy's and you couldn't wear perfume and he only played opera and it was on that stretch of Elston Avenue and you thought for sure you were, there was long, vacant, vacant, vacant for a mile and you thought for sure you were gonna get killed and now look at Elston Avenue. Uh, George Badonsky with Tango, um, right up here on uh, where it was on Belma. You know, he had the vision to, um, you know, Jimmy, George, Gordon, these were the early guys that decided they were gonna take a step up. Gordon went 15 steps up and, uh, you know, did the Sunday brunch where the waiters were, were wearing their pajamas and God only knows what was going on the night before when they were wearing those pajamas. But they were serving you and that spawned Cafe Babariba New Year's Day. To this day, New Year's Day at Cafe Babariba is the pajama Sunday is the pajama New Year's brunch. Uh, Yoshi, Yoshi Katsumura, um, a great loss to the city a couple years ago. He started at Le Bastille and then went to Jimmy's, and then he opens his own restaurant, and now his children, his wife is running his restaurant, and now his daughter is quite an acclaimed pastry chef. Um, it's a little-known fact that Arnie Morton brought Gabino Sotolino and Jean Bonchet and Jean-Claude Poilavi. He brought them from Europe. They were all in, in London, and he brought them not to Chicago. He brought them to Lake Geneva, to the Abbey, of all places, because this is where Chicagoans escaped. And then, um, then he brought them into the city where the city embraced them. I will say 
that Chicago is notorious for not embracing out-of-town chefs. Um, and there's a lot of restaurateurs from, from outside the city that want to come to Chicago, but they're all afraid. If, if Wolfgang Puck had to close Spago, how are we going to make it, right? And it's kind of unfair because Chicago is a very warm and embracing community. Um, of course, there is competition like everything, but it is a big community, the camaraderie. If one suffers, we all suffer. And, um, you know, being across the street from Rick Bayless for 18 years was 18 years of joy. Um, Rick Bayless, uh, Jim Flint from the Baton, Gordon, ourselves, we made River North. It, you know, this was long before, you know, uh, Bub City and Hub 51 and Sunda and Billy Deck and Rocket. I mean, when you think that Jim Flint, the Baton, a female impersonator club is 50 years. Think about what River North 50 years ago, all those buildings, those were one hour hotels. I use the word loosely when I say that. <laughs> uh, but, but like George Badonsky had the visionary to bring Jean Joho from a three-star Michelin Aubergine in Alsace and he brought him to Chicago to open up Maxime's. And I'll never forget that in the newspaper there was articles after articles of about Jean Joho and, and, and George and about how Joho was going to have to bring all the chefs from France because there was no talent in Chicago. And that riled a little bit the French mafia because no one, people knew Joho because he was, was at the Auberge, of course, with the Haberlin brothers. But I remember Fernand calling me up. I was, I was, uh, chef at Jovan then, or the sous chef at Jovan, and he said, I want you to go interview, I want you to go call up Jean Joho and tell him what Chicago's all about. And that led to a lifetime of friendship with me and Joho because I never worked for him, but one of the greatest interviews I ever had was sitting in a room with George Badonsky and Jean Joho and talking about food and why Chicago will embrace Maxime's and will embrace Joho, that this is your new home and that there is talent in Chicago. And um, we'll, we'll talk about the next visionaries, Michael Foley, who was most likely um, the first Midwestern restaurant with Printer's Row. He, he probably, I would go so far as to say he was the first farm to table, way ahead of its time. I lived across the street from it, so I was always over there, and I loved it. A restaurant that people, Chicagoans, still talk about, Avanzari, where True is or isn't <laughs> anymore. John Terzak, people still talk about that. I'm sure that Rich Melman gets that at least a few times a year. Why don't you bring back Avanzari? Um, Sarah Stegner at the Ritz-Carlton dining room. A young woman makes her name. She's one of the few people in the world to hit 30, 30, 30 on a Zagat guy. 30 for service, 30 for ambience, 30 for food. That, that's something that I'm not even sure if uh, any of the three-star Michelins did because that dining room was ridiculous under her domain and, and under um, Fernand Gutierrez and George Bombaras and, 
and all the, uh, the chefs that work there. Then, of course, the rise of the James Beard Foundation. We just trampled over New York. We just grabbed those awards as fast as we could. Every, every chef in the city was making its mark and making its way across the country. People started to recognize. Chicago got so big that James Beard had to divide the region to make it fair for the rest of the Midwest. So you have the Great Lakes now and and you have the Midwest, and there's talk of splitting it again and just making a Chicago region like they did in New York. Um, Donnie Medea and Rich Melman as restaurateurs of the year. Um, the, the beverage categories that now are with the James Beard Foundation, because that started in Chicago and New York. You think, you think Violet Hour, Violet Hour, when, the, when, the, when um, Terry Alexander um, and Donnie Medea designed this idea of, to this day, is still, this is where it all started. The Violet Hour, you can't go in there, you can't have a gin and tonic, you're having a cocktail, you're not taking a picture of it, just enjoy the cocktail. And, you know, people like to make drinks, jokes about the drinks, like, can I have a drink while you're making my drink kind of thing? Because, you know, sometimes these mixologists, they take as long as I do to make a drink. <laughs> but um, it's all in jest. We all, this is all fun. We all, I love the fact that the front of the house is now embracing. This is, now we're going full circle. It, it's like what fashion designers say, you know, leave that dress in the closet for 20 years and it'll come back around in style. And this is the same thing. All those prohibition cocktails are all coming back in style. Um, but I'm gonna end with like the big visionaries of the time. People who went into areas that they took a big risk, they probably paid little if any rent and they got people like yourselves, people from the suburbs, people from all over the city to come to their restaurants without valet parking, possibly without a parking lot. People like Jimmy's and Cafe Absinthe where you entered in the alley, Green Dolphin Street where you combined a dining club and a big, huge nightclub. Gordon, of course, Printer's Row. Le Francais, I mean, people who came from Wheeling, I mean, can you imagine right now saying to yourself, hey, we're, tonight we're going to dinner in Wheeling? And you'd be like, yeah, right. Um, Vivo, Vivo started Randolph Street. Nothing would happen on Randolph Street if it wasn't for Howard Davis and Jerry Kleiner and that whole gang that started Shelter. I mean, if we think Shelter, Shelter's probably like 40 years ago, right? These guys went where a few dared to go and succeeded and paved the way for Randolph Street. Like, Vivo paved the way for um, that crush of Restaurant Row. Um, Gordon was 31 years, we were 18 years. So our landlord, 500 North Clark and that building, because it's a number of buildings, had two restaurants for 49 years. I mean, that, that's a run. Um, let's take a moment to talk about Nick Kokonis and Grant Ackes. You have the genius behind the genius. So you, they're interchangeable. They're both, uh, they excel at what they do because they do what no one else does. And that is the key for standing out. Um, 
for Grant to be at the height of what he is at, at, at the age that he started at and to have what he called the interruption of his life, to battle cancer, write a book, and fuel restaurant expansion all while having cancer, um, and looking at the doctors in the face and saying, this treatment is not gonna work for me. Either you have to find something better, like challenge the norm. Um, the rise of the Boca Group, who in 2002 had one restaurant and now the leading chef-driven restaurant empire. Um, Brandon Sotokoff of Hogshall, who started with just this little guilt bar and started above that, and then I'm gonna make a hamburger, and now it's the talk of the town from all over the United States, number one hamburger in America, it's in London, Brandon Sotokoff worked for Rich Melman. That's where that, so that, how many restaurateurs have worked for Rich that are now on their own? And uh, Brandon Sotokoff actually has a director of hospitality, vision, values, and, um, and delights. So how would you like to have that on your business card? Um, you have Paul Kahn and Donnie Medea and the one-off hospitality group and their um, incredible line of success of Publican and Avec and Publican Market and Nico and um, and then they've now spawned off to Pacific Standard Time with with Erling to start his own company. Um, the demise of Greek Town that all these guys came from Greece and they opened these tremendous restaurants in Greek Town and the next generation doesn't want to run them anymore. So what are we seeing? They're selling their restaurants, developers are taking over, and everyone, you know, like, it's really sad because we always, everyone loved going to Greek Town, and we still, on occasion, I've gone twice this year already to Greek Isles, and jam-packed and fun service, and I have to say, if you know what to order, yeah, you're gonna have a great meal. Um, no, it's the truth, like, and then let's talk about Ina, right here. Ina, the breakfast queen, who made us think differently about a meal period that, that most people just thought of as, it's, oh, it's just pancakes and eggs, until Ina came to town and said, it's not just pancakes and eggs, and it's just the style in which we do it, and she herself, was an innovator on how to finance your restaurant, how to run your restaurant, how to, oh, you have all those samples and of uh, perfumes and colognes and you go to hotels and you take home the shampoo and conditioner. Why don't you just leave them here and I'm gonna bring them to a woman's shelter? Why don't you bring me a cool salt and pepper shaker and I'll put it out on the table? These are all things that set Ina's apart besides the heavenly hotcakes, besides the, the scrapple that no one in Chicago knew what scrapple was until all of a sudden there's scrapple. And then she self-publishes a cookbook and all while in an obscure part of Randolph Street and, and, and led to which fueled the fire for toast and jam and wild berry and all these breakfast spots that wish they were Ina's, right? Um, we can't talk about restaurants without talking about the, uh, the impact of television. Um, reality TV, the Food Network, 
Um, a lot of Chicago chefs made their names. Stephanie Izard um, was, you know, had started Scylla and was somewhat struggling. Goes on TV, shows her talents, shows her innovation, shows her what makes Stephanie Stephanie, and comes out and says, I have an idea. And next thing you know, it's Girl and the Goat, and then it's Little Goat, and then it's Duck, Duck, Goat, and the list goes on and on. And that fueled uh, Joe Flom, who won Top Chef, and Rick Bayless, who won Master Chef. And the impact of Graham Elliott, of you go from a chef, I'm not going to cook on TV, I'm just going to judge you. So um, I would say that as we come into the 2000, you have guys like Michael Carlson who said, why can't the cook serve you your food? And why, why do I need a liquor license? And why can't I play the music that I want to play? And I'm going to serve you food that's going to blow your mind. And you're going to come to Ashland Avenue, you're going to eat my food, and I'm not going to tell you what you have, and maybe you get a bill, maybe you don't, but make sure you bring something for the kitchen because they're going to be the ones to serve you. So he took, he broke down the stereotype right away that, why do I have to hire a server? Why can't the cooks come out? And the cooks are going to explain the food to you better than any server will. So think, think about that. The, the influence of Michelin Chicago now is Michelin stars, and they've been here, I think, eight years. And um, we've had three three-star Michelin restaurants, which now we have one. We've had a slew of two stars, and now we have a couple, I think. Um, so, and then we have the whole slew of one-star Michelins, which range from all, from gastropubs, to Everest, to Naha, to Topolobambo. And Michelin is now, yes, it's very political, but it's breaking down the barriers and looking at, it's great food is great food, whether it's, it doesn't have to be French and it doesn't have to be on bone china to get that Michelin star. And the chef doesn't have to stay in the kitchen. The chef can come out and bring me the food and tell me what it's about and, hey, have a good time and, hey, can I have a sip of your wine too while I'm at it? And, and uh, it's just a whole new movement, which unfortunately brought about, you know, which led to the underbelly of restaurant culture, which unfortunately is things that you'll see in this scrapbook, like a day in Le Francais, a day in Le Perroquet, long, long hours. You know, 12 hours is a norm, 14, 16 hours, it's not unusual. And the burnout rate is very, very high. The Me Too movement has highlighted this, like how many women came into the industry and how many women are now not in the industry. We're working on a group right now of developing um, a group of women and men to find out why women are leaving our industry, whether they're front of the house, the back of the house, because is it threatening, is it sexual harassment, or is the work too hard, or what can we do? You can't work from home in the restaurant industry. Uh, it's just not possible. I was saying to some people the other day, like, I think it's really cool that you work from home, but you know, I can't, I can't Uber your food over to you. Um, something worth noting that when Roger Greenfield was at his height, 
the Dow Jones had hit a high and it was 2,100 points, right? Um, and the last thing I'm going to talk about is the Charlie Trotter influence on Chicago. Um, the list goes on and on of the chefs from Della Gossett, Dan McGee at the Swiss Hotel, Curtis, Grant, Graham Elliott, Giuseppe, Guillermo, Michelle Geyer, Mike Rotundo, Matthias, Rick Tremano, Gail Gant. The list goes on and on of how he developed a team over a span of almost 30 years and developed a culture, like it or not, developed a culture that has spread across the country. David Lefebvre in Los Angeles, the master sommeliers. It was highly unusual to have one master somme, but yet Charlie had six and seven at any given time because if I'm gonna sell wine, you wanna hear it from a master sommelier to tell you the difference between one vintage of of uh, Polini Montrachet at another. You want to know the difference? I'm going to tell you that difference. And Charlie had, like I said, you know, he was a very, very close personal friend and he was deeply passionate about what he did. It's well documented. The right side, the wrong side, in between, the good and the bad. But the thing is, is he always said, after love, there's only cuisine. So that's my, uh, my one hour, right on the dot, one hour rundown of... of Chicago in the Chicago from the 1800s to now. So thank you. Yes? I have two questions. Okay. One... Was I wrong on anything? I hope not. Okay. One, approximately, when is Naha going to reopen? And the second question is, do you know of any really outstanding Armenian restaurant <laughs> could you in Chicago? And the, the question is, um, okay, so my cousin Michael and I, we had a series of tragedies in our families last year, and which led me to have a reevaluation of everything, question everything, and we wanted a new look to Naha. And it was the square peg round hole that no matter what we were trying to do, the space wasn't going to work for us. And I will tell you that 18 years at 500 North Clark, being in the right in the center of River North, I love it. I mean, Brondi is one block up, so it's not like I don't love the neighborhood because I love the neighborhood. And um, But I just felt like the wife that tells the husband, it's time for us to get a, a new home. I went to Michael and said, I, I really want a new home. And um, it was a very, very painful decision. It's been four months. I will tell you, there's a lot of highs and lows and you gotta just rise up. You gotta be the cream on top of the milk and you have to say to yourself, I'm doing this. I love what I do and I, I want to continue doing it. So the new space will be announced shortly. Um, I leave when it opens in the hands of my architect cousin, Tom Nahabedian. But unlike Italy, who closed one day after they opened because of tremendous success, restaurants, when they open, you open when you're ready because once you open, you can't close. So I never have a starting date. I had hoped for the winter, but I would say, uh, 
realistically with all of the things that we have going on in our lives right now, you take a long, hard look when you, when you lose people and you take care of people, and I would say in the spring. And then the other thing about where is great Armenian food? Okay, what is Armenian cuisine? So you have to divide it up by saying, I, you'd be better pressed to say, I need to find some Middle Eastern cuisine. I mean, I would ordinarily tell you that Sayat Nova is the only real Armenian restaurant, but you gotta search out the chef-driven small Middle Eastern restaurants because we're all cousins, Israeli, Lebanese, Syrian, Jordanian, Armenian, Turkish. We might not all be on the same page politically, but food-wise brings us all together. So I, for one, I love Taksim. I love Taksim and I love what he does. Um, if I had to tell you how many times, and I heard it four times like yesterday and I was practically in tears by the end of the night, of everyone saying, can you just at least bring the meza back at Brandy at the bar? So I was gonna do it this summer, but I am gonna do it this fall that I'm gonna bring back some of the Naha, the Naha bar menu at Brandy uh, once I um, figure out how I'm gonna fit that in the size of my kitchen that I have. But I would say um, I, I had moments of brilliance on small dishes of meza up at like Sistaya on, in Skokie on Tui is, is, has good Greek Mediterranean influenced food. Um, I love Taksim and I think you have to find small elements in the city. Search out those Middle Eastern restaurants. Have you tried the Gundis on Clark Street? It's uh, Kurdish. It's really delicious. 2909 North Clark. The Gundis. G -U -N -D -I -S. The Gundis. Gundis I haven't been. means villager and the Gundis and all these people work together. It's really delicious. Great breakfast, okay. they spread out a whole bunch of stuff, and the dinner is exquisite. I'm going to write that down. What about the cake? What about the cake? Oh, the cake. Okay, the chocolate cake, it's bigger than one bite, unless Scott took the whole thing in one bite. So, um, Guitar Chocolate out of San Francisco, Burlingame, California, is celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. So, little story. Uh, Etienne Guitar and Levi Strauss both came to the United States, both came from Europe, supposedly on the same ship, then train, then stagecoach, whatever you took in the uh, 1800s to get to San Francisco during the gold rush. And Levi Strauss said, I'm going to go back to Europe and uh, bring back my machines to make denim or, or I'm going to make jeans because these guys, they don't. I'm gonna make a fabric that's durable for these people to work in you know, mining for gold. And Guitar said, I'm going back to Europe and I'm gonna bring chocolate because they need sustenance. So 150 years ago, um, there was no Panama Canal, obviously, and the trade routes for chocolate were very distinct. So for the 150th anniversary, which is now fifth or sixth generation, Gary Guitard runs the company. He developed a line just for chefs that if you were lucky enough at the Armenian Fest at our church this past weekend, 
uh, guitar chocolate donated an enormous basket of chocolates that are virtually un unobtainable on the market, and it's part of their 150th anniversary line of extremely delicious chocolates. So they developed a chocolate based on the trade route of 1968, of 1868. And that cake that Scott ate yesterday is the 150th anniversary chocolate. And uh, it's, I call it a delice because it just, our pastry chef Craig Harzewski has taken this chocolate, made it into something that it is packs of power. It's, it's really tremendous. So that's the story of the cake. And it has gold leaf on it. Of course it does. It has to, right? It has to have gold leaf. It's 150 years you have to celebrate. Yes? Can you talk a little bit more about molecular gastronomy and farm to table? Okay. So anyone who practices a modern cuisine... Oh, we're talking about um, molecular gastronomy and farm to table. Um, molecular gastronomy is a term that came from journalists and came from um, food critics for lack of a better word. Uh, I myself would call it more of a modernist cuisine. And it's the breakdown of the food with the addition of neutral chemicals that alter food. And it's not unlike how you have a um, baked potato chip or a gummy bear or a Snickers bar. This is, this is all molecular cuisine. And um, obviously, the person who really brought this to the forefront um, and said, don't accept the norm, let's do something a whole way different, was Ferran Adria at El Bulli. And the disciples of Ferran Adria, from his brother, brother Albert, to the people that went there, from all the chefs, there's very few chefs of note that did not make that pilgrimage to um, Rosa, Spain, to dine. It was, it was like dining in a James Bond villain's lair, because you, the road up and overlooking the rocks, and it was like nothing you could ever imagine. And you never even saw a utensil till like the 15th course, right? You just, they just handed you things. So um, it is, it, it takes a special mind. Obviously in Chicago, um, I didn't even really touch on the brilliance of the late Homaro Cantu, um, who along with Graham Elliott and Grant Ackes, brought this right to the forefront. And Grant obviously has embraced it. You know, I think what people forget about modern cuisine is you still cook. You know, this isn't like a chemical lab where we're just, everyone's mixing potions and, and well, maybe, but maybe on a gummy bear, okay? But you still have to, you still have to cook elements of it. So. I think Grant has said in the past, people make it sound like I don't, like I just fabricate food, but you are, you are cooking, you're just cooking with a modernist approach and non-conventionally for the average layman. So things like ascorbic acid and are the norm and, and, and gases and canisters of things. Um, 
when Grant wrote his cookbook, he said I could do it two ways. I think I saw an interview with him and he said it. I could do it two ways. I could just have pictures and explain what it is, but then I'd be criticized that I didn't give the recipe, that I was hiding something. Or I could give the picture and the recipe and the whole procedure and it takes three pages and then people mock me because all like, who has time to do this? It wasn't a question, it's more of a textbook. And there, are, there have been stories written by journalists about people who, how much money it cost them and what they bought to make a meal. But this is why you go to Alinea because you can't duplicate this at home. Don't try, the word is don't try this at home kind of thing. Maybe you can try one thing. But if he didn't tell you how to do it, then you think he was hiding something. So he was really transparent and wrote a stunning book that probably every chef in the world has on their bookshelf. Farm to table, completely opposite of the spectrum, but you still have to, every food comes from a farm. It just depends on what type of farm that is. And, um, Abby Mandel, who I didn't, you know, I just, like I said, I could have talked for four hours on this subject. Abby Mandel was the individual who brought the Green City Market, the, the Green City Market influence to Chicago. So 20 years, almost 20 years ago, Abby said to herself, all these farmers of the Midwest from uh, Champaign, uh, Indiana, from Champaign, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, we're, we're not even seeing their products. We're, we're eating cherries from Washington State and California. Why aren't we, where is this product going? Where are these family farms? And she herself visited hundreds of farms and told them about what she wanted to do. And that first market was called the Best of the Midwest, and it was in the alley of Chicago, of the Chicago Theater. And we all, I, I came the year after. I still have the business card. She stuck in the construction wall at Naha that says, I'll ho I hope you'll help me with my vision. So her vision was to bring that farmers to Chicago and sell to the chefs. And I will tell you that 190 restaurants shop at the Green City Market. There's probably 40 more that we just don't know about. Like maybe they have not told us that what their restaurants are. But 190 restaurants sell things that they ordinarily would not be able to put on their menu. Little baby corn from Tracy Vole and uh, the fresh rutabagas instead of wax coming from California and, and who knows how long they came out of the ground. But the farm to table movement started out as something like that. It spread to like a Saturday Night Live joke about you know the potatoes harvested on a full moon while the sun was setting and the, the birds were chirping. And you know, I could go on and on about that. But the, in reality, what it is is when you're cooking farm to table, you're honoring the, the land, you're honoring the farmer, you're honoring the season, but more importantly, it's a generational sustainability issue. And every year we might lose a farmer at the Green City because the same thing, like the, the next generation doesn't want to take it over or they lost the land to development. But the, the reality is, is that you have growers like um, 
Green Acres and Genesis and Nichols and Seedling and McClue that are bringing things to the market that we that you as a you as a client are are experiencing in restaurants and you as a consumer are going to the market and experiencing Saturn peaches that Ina just brought me because they're my favorites that you wouldn't you're not going to go to the Jewel and find Saturn peaches okay maybe now Mariano's has that but this is the farm to table movement all right some people have embraced it a little heavier and some people have said they're farm to table and not necessarily embraced it in the, the highest level of integrity. Yes? Oh, this uh, is, excuse me, this will be the last question. Okay, last question. Um, what advice besides don't would you tell someone who wants to go on the restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> what advice besides don't would I give to someone who wants to open a restaurant in Chicago? I would say you can never have enough money. So, <laughs> number one, the, the fact of the matter is, is we're in a business, and as passionate as we are, and we're, we're talent, and we have artists, unless you have somebody in the back of you watching over you, chefs can be notoriously bad with, with money and the product, and, and we get involved in the cooking aspect instead of the business aspect. Now, that has changed. I, I'm a little bit different because I came up through working under great restaurateurs and then I went into hotels as executive chefs with Four Seasons and you learned really quickly because you had incredible directors of finance. Um, but I will tell you that the number one thing that I would tell someone if they really, really wanted to open a restaurant is um, say to yourself why you want to do it, what, what's your What's your vision? What's your exit strategy? I never would say what's your exit strategy, you know, because you have to think about that all the time. But I, the number one thing is is to, um, if it was so hard, everybody wouldn't do it. So it is easier to open a restaurant, but you do have to have an element of being a maniac in your life to want to, to do this. I'll end with a friend of mine just opened a restaurant. She, she's an empty nester. She used to be a chef. Um, she was doing food research. Um, all of a sudden, her kids are out of school. They've moved on. And she said, I found it to be so boring. I missed the buzz. I missed the adrenaline. I mean, there isn't anything like owning a restaurant. There isn't anything like inviting people into your home, which is your restaurant, and showing them the highest form of hospitality. And she opened a restaurant, and we all went there the other day, and she said, I think I'm just, there's nights when I come home and I say, I'm absolutely insane. But you have to have a little bit of that to be in this business. Okay, uh, uh, we're gonna talk about the food, no more questions, because we gotta, we're. I have a shout out for some of the great guys that ended up out in Melrose Park. Okay. Singular Ben Moy. Okay. And also, um, Flicker Sam. Okay. Melvin took his um, inspiration from the line coming out of Flicker Sam's store, according to that Chicago um, Sunday magazine section of the trip. Actually, you're going to see that right in here. And Melrose Park, if any of you don't know, it's, I know it very well because it's around the corner from our church. But some of the great Italian restaurants, like you want a really home-style meal, you're going to go to Melrose Park. 
But it was a pleasure here. I hope I didn't bore any of you, but it is a pretty exciting history of Chicago. Thank you so much. My, uh, since I was a little kid, I, I have tons of scrapbooks, and I, I would say that I'm about 20 years behind right now. I just have bins of newspaper articles. At some point, I'll just throw it away, but I haven't put it into books, but this is a book that spans from the 70s and the 80s. It's kind of, pretty kind of fun. And a lot of the chefs have come and signed their pages because they heard that I had this book. And um, I got it out of storage just for today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Deb, are you in the room? Deb, Deb, are you in the room? Or could, could you talk about the food that Deb Silverstein prepared? So Deb, oh, Deb. So our good friend Deb Silverstein has prepared um, a tomato soup. Um, a crostini um, uh, just to dip in, and three different calmars, um, one that was cinnamon and sugar, one that's strawberry and cinnamon and sugar, and one that is a chocolate almond spread. So that's the one on the end. If you're allergic to nuts, don't eat that one. <laughs> and what, what's the significance of this food as far as? Tomatoes are in season. Yeah, it's, it's fresh, it's, you know, it's a French pastry, you know, it uses puff pastry, so it's, that was it. Oh, because it's about Chicago's restaurant history, but no, this but is just was, good. It was also the, you know, the French influence in Chicago's restaurants. Great, so please enjoy the, the food and thank you for coming. Thank you so much. I hope so. I hope you liked it.